important. We paid our money. We stood in line, and there at St. Stephen's Basilica, they had preserved the hand of St. Stephen. It was there in a little case, and it just sort of seemed macabre to me to be preserving parts of bodies of people, and that whole uh, business seems odd to me. The people there are very proud of the fact that they have St. Stephen's hand. I noticed that Nehemiah, as we saw in the book of Ezra last week and in Nehemiah this week, was much more concerned about the hand of God than he was about the hand of any person, much less some uh, relic of somebody's um, past. In fact, what Nehemiah says over and over again is that we succeeded because the gracious hand of God was with us. God's hand was with him. We pick up his story in Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm just going to read uh, some verses from chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 with you, and then we'll tell this story and draw some truths for our lives tonight. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word tonight? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev... In the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And I was cupbearer to the king. Then in chapter 2, these words, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my father's are buried, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, 
Let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams from the gates, for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that your gracious hand would be upon us tonight as we open your word, that you would teach us some truth from your word that would transform our lives. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to celebrate your goodness to us. Today is a day not for weeping, but for rejoicing. A day, Lord, when you have set all things right, when you have placed among us those who will minister to us for many years to come. We thank you for the arrival of the Ictors. We thank you, Lord, for Casey Berry, her ministry to this date, and her ministry in the future as our minister of preschool education. And I pray, God, tonight that you will draw us together as a family and help us to celebrate, help us to rejoice, Lord, and let the joy of our God be our strength as a community of joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I love the book of Nehemiah. It is part of what we would call the history section of the Old Testament. If you remember, when we started this journey, we began with the Torah and we studied the five books of the law, and we looked at them in depth and in detail, one sermon on each book. And then we began this series that we would call the historical section, where we, where we considered Joshua and Judges and Ruth on a Sunday morning, actually, and then First and Second Kings, uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra, and now Nehemiah and Esther the next time we gather in a chapel series sermon, which will actually be in the month of August. But all that to say, we're coming to the conclusion of this historical section. And Nehemiah brings us really to the end. I know if you're reading and you sort of see the Old Testament's chronological order, you think we're a long way from Malachi. But really, Nehemiah's time is not a long way from Malachi's time. And what we really have is sort of the historical rendering of the end. Remember, the Israelites came back in three waves with Zerubbabel and with Ezra and now Nehemiah, who feels this deep calling to go where they've already begun to rebuild the temple and he wants to rebuild the wall. He wants to help them to find security. It's really an interwoven story of two leaders. And the writer of Nehemiah, and we believe Nehemiah and Ezra were originally one book. In fact, in, in some ancient compilations, they serve as, as one book. But what we, we find is that they're inextricably intertwined. And even more, Ezra and Nehemiah are intertwined. Their stories, Nehemiah, the sort of political leader, the governor, cupbearer, sounds like a person who's not very important, but really it was a very high office in the, uh, in the Persian government, and he has risen to that office. It's, an, it's a, a place of influence and prestige. He is very close to the king. He has access to the king. But Nehemiah is deeply and genuinely concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people who are back in Jerusalem, and he asks about them, and when he hears he doesn't like what he hears about how distressed and dismayed the people are there. 
and using his influence, not just with the Persian king, but with the king of kings. He goes to the father in prayer and he asks him for favor and God grants him favor. And and he comes back and he becomes a governor of sorts and begins to set things in order and overcomes the opposition. And then there's that magnificent moment of worship when all things are ready. They've completed the rebuilding of the wall. They're going to dedicate the wall. And Ezra stands up and begins to read from the scrolls of Scripture to the people. And when he reads, they spontaneously stand to their feet and they begin to worship. And on that day, there is great reverence. There is lifting of hands, but there is also people falling on their faces before God. And all the ranges of emotion that capture our hearts when we worship are expressed in the book of Nehemiah. And finally, after they worship and they say, the joy of the Lord is your strength, then there is a solemn assembly in which they confess not only their sins, but the sins of their fathers. And, and Nehemiah, for a season, will return, we learn Back to Artaxerxes, the the king of Persia. He goes back there and when he returns, discovers that in such a short time, the people have already forgotten all the lessons that he has taught them. And he comes back and sets things in order again. And the end of the book is a prayer where he says, Oh God, remember me. Lord, maybe nobody else will remember me, but you remember what I have done for these people. And it's a a marvelous story. It teaches us something about, about finding success. It teaches us about overcoming opposition. This book teaches us so much about worship. But best of all, for our purposes this evening, it shows us how the servants of God can work together with their distinctive giftedness, with all of their uniqueness, how God can call a man like Nehemiah and a man like Ezra and place them side by side, and together they lead the people of God, and they do a tremendous work among God's people because they are in it together under the lordship of God and the sovereign God who has called them. And this expression, this beautiful word that I read to you where he says, the gracious hand of my God was upon us. This is Tallowood's story for the last 50 years. I don't know how you can account. How could we account for all the good things that God has done in this place except to say that the gracious hand of God has been upon us. And our prayer going forward is that we will walk hand in hand, in step with the Spirit, led by God under His gracious hand to do everything that God has called us to do. I know we we often read the book of Nehemiah. I know we preachers are guilty of this when we're about to start a building program. I don't want you to be nervous tonight. As far as I know, we've built everything we need to build. There is that matter of parking, but we're going to address that in, in, in due time. But, but I think the real issue for us is not what building will we build. By, by your generosity, by the grace of God, we have magnificent places to worship and to teach our children and our preschoolers and to, to share the Word of God. We have magnificent instruments for music. We have everything we need. His divine power, God's gracious hand has given us everything we need But unless I miss my guess, there are some things that need to be rebuilt. It's not buildings that we need, but what if God could rebuild our lives? What is it in your life that needs to be rebuilt? Maybe it's your relationship with God because you become disappointed and disillusioned and dismayed. The the heartache of life has broken you down and you've lost the joy of your salvation. Or maybe it's, it's a relationship, maybe within your own home. 
maybe with a, a, a spouse or with a child. Something needs to be rebuilt. And here's what I want you to see. The same gracious hand of God that led Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall, that same gracious hand of God is upon us tonight to rebuild everything that needs to be rebuilt. And my dream for us at Tallowood is that we would be rebuilt as a mighty people of God so that we might be a place of spiritual refuge in a city where there is tremendous spiritual need. Just this week, one of our members brought to me one who had a tremendous need. And, and as I sat there and listened to the story, my heart just grieved and, and broke for this one, for this family. And it occurred to me that in this city there is a great deal of brokenness. That if we could capture the spirit of Nehemiah and if we could see the city of Houston as God sees the city of Houston for all of its graces and good things and the friendliness and the warmth of the people and all the economic strength and all the things that we see in this city, we would see that spiritually there is tremendous need in this city. And the very God who led his people to rebuild the walls and gave them a sense of strength and security will give us all the strength we need to minister to all the needs of the people in this city. What if the gracious hand of God were upon us? Wouldn't God's gracious hand enable us to do everything He has called us to do? I love Nehemiah's concern for people. I pray that you and I might have that same kind of empathy, that when we see people's needs, I notice that when Nehemiah hears about it, he, he fasts and he and he wears sackcloth, and he, his heart is just broken before the Lord, and he mourns, and he, he just seeks the face of God. He, he wants to know what God wants, and he's so burdened for his people, and he cares about their needs so greatly, and he grieves over the trouble that they're facing. The founder of World Vision said, Let my heart be broken by the things which break the heart of God. We learn a lot about leadership in this passage, and I'll tell you about leaders Leaders are compassionate. They care about other people. And, and he starts with this sadness. And with this sadness, he, he comes before the Lord in prayer. And he seeks the heart of God. And he, he talks to God. And he calls God who he is, the great and awesome God. And he, he remembers all that God has promised uh, through, through Moses. Remember that scroll I have in my office, that 15th century scroll from Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, which basically says, as I told the children in vacation Bible school, that God said to his people, if you will seek me and do what, what I want you to do, I will bless you in ways that so great that you will not be able to receive the blessing. But the other part of that story is, if you do not walk with me, then I will not bless you and you will experience great difficulty. And this is exactly what has been fulfilled. And Nehemiah knows that. And he calls upon God and reminds God that God promised that if his people would return to him, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And God makes this great promise and Nehemiah is going to take God at his word and he calls out to God in prayer. And I wonder if you and I are praying for our city the way that Nehemiah prayed for his city. A.J. Jacobs is a writer who lives in New York. He decided to obey the Bible as literally as possible for one year. Now, this is not a man who's been particularly religious, I would just say, but he decides he's going to obey the Bible. And he wrote a book about it called The Year of Living Biblically. And he has this interesting part of it where he talks about the first time that he prayed. And uh, he looked in the Bible. He had bought a, a whole stack of Bibles. He had read them 
uh, voraciously trying to understand what the Bible was so he could actually live the Bible. What he discovered about prayer in the Bible is that there's not one posture, you know this, for prayer. Sometimes people kneel, sometimes they fall on their faces, sometimes they stand with their hands lifted up in the air, and he said they're just all kinds, there's no one simple method. So he decided for his first prayer to sort of settle in the position with outstretched arms like a holy antenna, he said, hoping to catch God's signal. As for what to say, he wasn't sure what to pray, and he felt like a novice, and so he had memorized a few prayers. That one from the book of Job came to him, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he said, even as he prayed it, it felt unfamiliar, because when he said Lord, he said, I never say Lord unless I follow it with of the rings, and I don't often say God without um, preceding it with oh my. And so he said, I just felt odd, and my palms were sweaty, and I was trying to speak with earnest intent, but it felt like I was, I was failing, and I glanced at the clock, and I'd been praying for only a minute, and I had promised myself that I'd pray for at least 10 minutes three times a day, so I got back to work, and I squinted my eyes, and I tried to visualize God, and he said, my prayer was a fiasco. Well, that's an honest sort of assessment of his spiritual life, to say that you're going to live the Bible without having a personal relationship with the God of the Bible is a difficult challenge indeed. I notice about Nehemiah that prayer for him was not a form. It was a force. In fact, again and again in this book, we will see him right in the middle of a conversation with somebody. I mean, when he's about to talk to the king and the king says, what do you want? Right then he prays. I mean, he will interrupt everything he's doing to call out to God. And prayer is just spontaneous. He just, he just talks to the Lord as a, a process. Paul would say, pray without ceasing. And we see that in the life of Nehemiah. And actually, actually after he talked to the king of kings, then he found himself in the right posture to talk to the king of Persia, who was the great king of that time, Artaxerxes. He has the audacity to ask him for a favor, and he receives it. But his answer is not, yes, I really did well convincing the king of Persia. What he says is, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. And he says, God will give us success. And God does, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success after he inspects Jerusalem's walls. God's grace enables us to do everything that he has called us to do. Can I ask you tonight, what has he called you to do? What has he called Tallowood to do? When we understand the great commission that's been given to us, when we understand that God has given us the good news, the message that will literally transform lives, if we understand that the same gospel that changed us can change other people, then we know that with that message firmly planted in our hearts, seeking God in prayer, He will give us success in doing what He has called us to do. Now, just like Nehemiah, we will face obstacles, but God's grace empowers us to overcome the opposition and the obstacles in our lives. It's it's right there in chapter 2 that automatically when he starts trying to do the right thing, what do they say? No good deed goes unpunished. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab hear about it, they mock and ridicule Nehemiah and the people and say, you'll never succeed at this. Um, the, the leader of the opposition, I suppose, is Sanballat, this foreigner who says they can't succeed. If they try to pick up these heaps of rubble, uh, it'll just fall back down again. Tobiah says a fox will be able to jump up on it and knock it down, this wall that they're trying to build. By the way, a fox is a tiny animal. I remember one time 
I was out uh, sitting uh, up in a tree. I was out there and looking just at the beauty of God's creation. I was hunting, to be totally honest with you, but I was there and uh, I had a bow and arrow in my hand, so I was making it a fair fight anyway. And uh, this little fox came running by. And just for an instant, I saw him. When you think of fox, you may think of a coyote or a sort of small German shepherd. No, a fox is a tiny little animal. And he says, if, if a little fox got up on that wall, it would fall down. But, but the strength of Nehemiah and the people is not their construction company. Their strength is their God. And what he says again and again as he prays is, Our God will fight for us. And so he prays again in chapter 4, verse 4. And in chapter 4, verse 6, there's this magnificent statement that they, they built the wall to half of its height. And how were they able to do it? Because all the people worked with their whole hearts. They put their full hearts into the work. And in verses 16 to 18, after they're threatened, Nehemiah calls them to work with a sword in their hands building the wall, but also prepared to fight against those who are trying to overcome them. And in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. So often in the Old Testament, we read the battle is the Lord's. In the New Testament, we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Henry Van Dyke wrote, happy and strong and brave shall we be, able to endure all things and to do all things if we believe that every day and every hour and every moment of our life is in God's hands. If we believe that we are in God's hands, happy and strong and brave shall we be. He says to them in chapter 6, verse 9, our God will strengthen our hands. They keep trying to get Nehemiah to quit. When they can't do it through ridicule, they invite him to leave town for a while. They'll do anything to stop this project. And Nehemiah says, I'm carrying on a great project for God. I can't interrupt it. When you try to do something great for God, there'll always be somebody who's got something lesser for you to do. But don't be distracted from the purpose that God has given you. Be intentional about it. Later, some of them tried to trick him. They were deceitful. Often, they just lied about Nehemiah. In chapter 6, verse 8, he just confronts that head on and says, you're telling a lie. What you're saying is not true. And the opposition we face in doing God's work is not primarily within the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul will say our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And it is amazing the way the enemy works, how he divides in an attempt to destroy. But God has a greater purpose. And sometimes out of the greatest difficulty and discouragement, comes great possibility. Bruce Tielemann tells about a a man who sold insurance and he wanted to sell an insurance policy. This was back in the 1880s and he went to a man that nobody had been able to sell insurance to and he convinced the man to buy a $50,000 insurance policy. Now, $50,000 back in the 1880s was a lot of money. And so he, he pulled the contract out and he handed the man a pen and the man started trying to write and the pen wouldn't work. The man tried several times to get the pen to work, and finally he looked at this insurance salesman and said, you know what, I think I'm going to take a little more time to think about this. The pen won't work. Maybe this is not what I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. He lost the sale is the rest of the story, and he was so discouraged by that that he decided that day, this man whose name was Waterman, that he would never lose another deal because of a pen that wouldn't work. He invented an ink pen. And Lewis Waterman and the Waterman fountain pen became the premier writing instrument of America over the next 50 years. Sometimes out of our discouragement comes great possibility. 
This is Nehemiah's story. They're telling him it can't be done. But in 52 days, they built that wall back to its full height because the people trusted in the gracious hand of God. Now, what has God called us to do? And who has discouraged you? And watch how the gracious hand of our God empowers you to do exactly what He wants you to do. When we realize that God's gracious hand is with us, we can do everything He's called us to do. With His gracious hand, we can overcome all opposition and obstacles. With God's gracious hand, we can worship God with our whole hearts. And in chapters 8 and 9 and 12 and 13, we have such a beautiful portrait of worship. How God's grace evokes our reverence and our rejoicing. And once they rebuild the wall, they decide to have a worship service. And it's just magnificent to see the unity in their worship. Because nobody had anything more important than worship that day. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, the, that all the, people, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. In other words, if they had taken roll that day, not one person was absent. Oftentimes we read about Baptist churches that if you hit 50% of your membership on a single day, that's a great day of attendance. But on that day, everybody was there. There were no, uh, pardon me, but there were no soccer games that were more important than worship that day. There, there, was, there was nothing else going on that preempted the worship of God at that time. And I love the way worship brought them together. Remember, there were people who had been over in exile and some who had never left and some who'd sort of been on the outside looking in and they brought all these people together for worship because the great thing about true worship is that it brings us together. It makes the worship wars going on in some fellowships today awfully strange because worship was never intended to divide but to unite the people of God. And Nehemiah and Ezra are exemplary in this. Nehemiah, this sort of political leader. Ezra, the spiritual leader. But watch the way they work together. Watch the way that God works through them. It is marvelous the way they come together. I read one time about a sea captain and his chief engineer who were arguing over who was most important to the ship. And to prove their point, they said, why don't you just, why don't you just trade jobs with me for a day? So they traded jobs, you know. And the chief engineer ascended to the bridge and the captain went down to the engine room and it was several hours later, the captain came upstairs. He was covered in grime and grit and dirt. And he said, Chief, you're going to have to come down here. He was waving a monkey wrench. Chief, you've got to come down here. I can't make this ship go. And the chief engineer who had tried to be captain said, Of course you can't. I've run the ship aground. <laughs> Neither one of them could do it. They needed each other to do what they did well. I love it when it says in Ezra and Nehemiah, every one of them took their place. Everybody found, we would say in the, in the light of the New Testament, their spiritual gift. And they used those gifts for the glory of God, by the grace of God. On a team, we don't excel each other, but we depend on each other. We need each other to do what we do well. And Eltron Trueblood was right when he said, what is most rewarding is doing something that really matters with congenial colleagues who share with us the firm conviction that the work needs to be done. There is a great glory in working together. Notice the unity of their worship. Notice the reverence when it says they all stood up there in chapter 8, verse 5, when Ezra opened the book, and they raised their hands and said, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord. Notice there were, there were Charismatics, Baptists, and Catholics right there in the gathering. You had people raising their hands. You had some saying Amen, and some falling on their faces, kneeling down in worship, of course, 
there weren't denominations, just one group of people expressing the full range of emotion that comes to a people who have not been allowed to worship for so long that they are just grateful for the chance. We are thrown off sometimes by those <clears throat> who lift their hands in worship. I remember I was in college the first time I ever saw that. I'd lived 18 years of my life and never seen anybody lift their hands in worship. I went to an Imperials concert up in Fort Worth with two of my friends, and we sat down in a section, and directly when they began to sing, everybody around us lifted their hands. We looked around. We did not know what that meant. We were all young ministerial students, Baptist preachers in the making, and we didn't know what that was about. What do lifted hands mean? The Scripture says they lifted their hands. I read in First Timothy chapter 2 in my daily Bible reading this morning, I want all men everywhere to lift holy hands to God without disputing. Uh, the way uh, Eugene Peterson in the message translates it, he says, instead of a clenched fist, offer God an open hand in worship. We see people lift their hands, a child asking a parent to pick her up. Imagine a person who's surrendering unconditionally, and they come out with their hands up. I love what Dennis Jernigan writes in his song, with our hands lifted high. We will worship and sing. With our hands lifted high, we come before you rejoicing. With our hands lifted high to the sky, when the world wonders why, we'll just tell them we're loving our King. However God calls you to love Him, I encourage you to love Him with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole strength, with your whole soul, with all that you are. Love the Lord our God. And we ought to give each other some room in, in terms of worship without judging others who lift hands or who say amen or who fall on their faces. One thing is sure, if we lift our hands to the Lord, they ought to be holy hands. We ought to be sure that our hands are holy before we lift them up to the Lord. Notice there's instruction in their worship in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8. It says the Levites, and it gives the list of their names there, how they instruct the people in the law and how they read it to them and they make it clear so the people can understand it. There's rejoicing in their worship in verses 9 and 10. It says that they, they rejoice before the Lord and they weep before the Lord. I think tears of joy. They cry before the Lord, but pretty quickly Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites say, wait a minute, this is not a day for weeping. This is a day for rejoicing, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I read this week um, this expression, there is a joy so large that it's no longer inside you, but you are inside of it. That's the joy they felt that day. Lewis Smead says, if you miss joy, you miss the reason for your existence. Sometimes worship is celebration. That's why we call ourselves the community of joy. That is the the chief characteristic of our lives, that we would be that joyful people of God who rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Sometimes worship is celebration. But there are those who would say to us, worship is always, only, ever celebration. In response to that, I would just point you to chapter 9 where the people confess their sins. Sometimes worship is celebration. Sometimes worship is confrontation. Sometimes it's conviction. God challenging the sin in our lives. Imagine Isaiah when he comes before the Lord with unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. That is not a time of celebration for him. When he sees that God is holy, 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 and he is unholy, 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 he, he can't celebrate in that moment. He, he falls before God as, a, as one who has died. He says, I am undone. I am ruined is one translation because Worship for him in that moment is confrontation. And we read in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that there is confession in worship. They fasted and they wore sackcloth. And 
I remember a solemn assembly at a passion conference for college students some years ago where the students just waited before the Lord. And for one-fourth of the day, just like in the book of Nehemiah, they read the Scripture over these students. And they just bowed before the Lord in a, a holy time of, of confession before God. And then they just, in a solemn assembly, it was not a time of rejoicing, just a time of holy Holy confession before the Lord. Confession of sin is part of worship. And then, I love about Nehemiah that he shows us, as the Chronicles do, that there is great music in worship. And we see it in, in chapters uh, 12 and, and 13, especially in chapter 12. They don't just have one choir, they have two choirs. And the choirs sort of go different directions on the wall, and it sort of becomes a surround sound as the choirs are singing and celebrating and giving God glory. Peter Bueller said, if I had a thousand tongues, I'd praise Christ with them all. Charles Wesley picked that up and wrote our song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, earth with her thousand voices praises God. And Soren Kierkegaard said, it is magnificent to be clothed like the lilies in the field, but the supreme glory is nothingness in adoration, in humility, just adoring our God. Ultimately, worship transforms us, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, by renewing our minds so that we're no longer conformed to this world, but transformed in our spiritual act of worship. We don't just give God a gift, but we offer our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. William Temple defines worship so beautifully. He says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of our conscience by His holiness. That's Isaiah's experience. The nourishment of the mind with His truth. The purifying of the imagination by His beauty. The opening of the heart to His love. The surrender of the will to His purpose. And I'll tell you whether you can find out whether you've actually worshipped. It's not just how we feel. It's not just whether we've sung or heard the Scripture taught. It's not just whether we've prayed. But at the end of the day, chapter 13 tells us Nehemiah goes away for a while and he comes back and discovers that the people have gone back to the exact same way of living. If you and I do not live our lives differently tomorrow, we cannot say we have worshipped today. Worship transforms us. It changes us. Worship is not about us getting what we want. Worship is about God getting us. It's about God getting what He wants. God getting our whole souls and our whole minds and getting us to love Him so greatly that we don't want to sin against Him, that we want to live for Him. William Alexander asked this poignant question. He said, if you were doomed to live the same life over and over again, sort of like that movie Groundhog Day, if you had to live the same way every day over and over again for eternity, would you choose to live the life you are living now? And then the more significant question is, if your answer to that is no, then why are you living the life you are living now? Do something about it. Worship enables us to do something about our lives, to see God change us so that we become the people that He wants us to be. And I love about Nehemiah that 
he finally realizes it's a sort of thankless job sometimes leading people. And I'm not sure Nehemiah ever in his lifetime got uh, the recognition that, that he might have hoped for or maybe that he deserved. But at the end of the day, four times in chapter 13, he says, God, it's okay if nobody else remembers me, but you remember me. And I think of that great worship classic that I learned in second grade Sunday school. Do, Lord, oh, do, Lord. Oh, do remember me. And Nehemiah's song at the end of the day is, Lord, don't forget, you called me to do this. And if nobody else knows, if nobody else realizes, God, you know my heart. You know why I've done these things. You know why I've helped these people. And Nehemiah comes to the Lord. And the final word is, remember me, oh God, who has put your gracious hand on me. Remember me with favor, oh my God. And at the end of the day, he thanks God for his grace and gives God all the glory as we sing. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Is that your story? That's Nehemiah's story. Let's make it ours. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your gracious hand that is upon us. Thank you for Nehemiah who led who loved the people, who gave his heart and soul to them, who worked with Ezra. Lord, thank you for assembling a team of leaders to lead the people who are called Tallowood. Thank you for this privilege, Lord. We believe you could have chosen anybody you wanted to to serve in these various roles, but we are grateful, God, you've called us here. And our answer to your call, Lord, is yes. And if we had a thousand lives, we would want to serve you and every one of them. We would want to serve this people and every one of them. So make us faithful, Lord, to live by your grace, to live for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.